Santana. Okay, today we'll be finishing our series on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So if you would locate Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 in your Bible or on your phone, I'll read from there shortly. Again, that reference is Revelation 3, 14. As you're doing so, I want to refresh our memories on the last two letters to the churches that we've gone through in our sermon series. The Lord Jesus Christ wrote to these churches with praise for any good that was evident in them and also sent them corrective words so they might be more sanctified before he returns. Chapter 3 is filled with churches that are known by their works. Each introduction to the churches in chapter 3, both to Sardis and to Philadelphia, starts with Jesus saying, I know your works. Sardis was a church that had a good reputation, but by Jesus' true assessment, they were a church that was dead and spiritually complacent. Philadelphia, though, was quite the opposite of Sardis. Philadelphia, uh, um, that looked like a small, powerless church in the sight of the world, yet by Jesus' right assessment, he declared them a gospel success story, a trophy of God's grace to the watching world. And the letter was filled with encouragement to keep living faithfully, trusting in Jesus during difficult times and hoping in the things yet to come. Now we come to the final letter, the final church. Here, Jesus wrote to the church in Laodicea to finish this part of the book of Revelation. So let's read it now, again, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, to the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. What comes to your mind when you hear the word lukewarm? Here, Jesus mentions that being lukewarm is the worst thing this church could be. If only they would be hot or cold, he says. I know that when I think of lukewarm, I think of a cup of coffee. Coffee is at its best when it's either hot enough to sip or it's that ice-cold, refreshing summer day. But when you pick up a once-warm cup of coffee that has been sitting there for too long and unsuspecting of its temperature, you take a drink, it's quite an unfortunate thing how lukewarm it is. That would probably be in the running for my low point that day if I did that. Now, I don't think I've ever actually spat out a lukewarm drink of coffee, so this example is only partially helpful 
so that we can think about what Jesus means to this church in Laodicea, but the problem of them being lukewarm. So you might be thinking, what's so bad about being lukewarm? Some things are served best when they aren't hot or cold. Now, if you're a parent or a caretaker of children, I get this sentiment. Uh, I certainly don't give my kids anything too hot to eat. Uh, also, things that are freezing cold typically don't work out well. Uh, really just above room temperature, kind of the way to go at the dinner table. However, the framework here that we need to approach this passage of Scripture with is one that sees hot or cold as a useful characteristic and lukewarm being something that is completely useless and disgusting. I hesitate to say this knowing that we have our kindergarten through fifth grade students with us, but the full reality of the word where Jesus says he's going to spit them out, it's not just spitting it out. It's actually the feeling you get when you have to throw up. It's that gross. The lukewarm church made him feel that seriously bad that he needed to throw them up out of his mouth. The lukewarm nature of this church brings out such an intense reaction from Jesus that thought to grab the attention of the church at Laodicea and help it grab our attention this morning to Emmaus. The main point of this scripture and the big idea of this sermon today is we remain a faithful church by humbling ourselves and communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. We remain a faithful church by humbling ourselves and communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this scripture shows us what the problem at Laodicea was, and then Jesus gives them a solution to their problem. And then he ends the letter by showing them what is to come if they listen to his solution. So I see the outline of this letter as follows. So verse 14, that's the speaker's introduction. The next three verses, 15 through 17, show the problem at the church. Verses 18 through 20 show the solution for the church. And verses 21 and 22 show us what is promised to those who listen and respond. So let's start in verse 14 with who this author is. So again, as I mentioned, as we looked back at the prior two letters before reading this one, Jesus introduces himself in each of these letters. He does this to establish why it's an important letter to pay attention to. He graciously and powerfully reminds us of his credibility as the faithful one and the ruler over all things. The words used here, the, the amen, as well as the faithful and true witness, these show a threefold repetition that is meant to establish the fact that this speaker, Jesus, he is true, true, true. Just as you could read ahead and see in Revelation 4 that he's being praised for being holy, 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 these phrases in verse 14 are telling us that this one who is speaking, well, he speaks rightfully and he speaks powerfully. If those three phrases are not enough to make your ears perk up and listen, we are also told that he is the beginning of God's creation. That word beginning can also mean ruler. So this phrase ultimately, it reminds us of what Paul is saying in Colossians 1, where he writes that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Paul also says that Jesus, uh, through, through Jesus, all things were created, and they were also created for Jesus. Lastly, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, the one who is distinguished above all other things. He is the ruler over all because he is God. This title reminds Christians also of the great hope that we have. Since Christ has died and he has risen again, 
so you too, Christian, will be resurrected. You will not be harmed by the second death because Jesus now holds the keys to death and Hades. He is Lord over all. And we can say, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your victory? This powerful, true, and faithful ruler over all creation is who is speaking to the church at Laodicea. Those who had ears to hear were certainly listening to his words, though I don't think they were suspecting what he was about to say in verses 15 through 17. You see, they were likely not suspecting the words of this letter because the one written to Laodicea was unlike any of the other six letters that have been written. Usually, Jesus would have something to commend or encourage the church on to encourage them when the letter starts. However, this church has absolutely nothing to commend or encourage. The closest similarity to this church will be the church at Sardis, where we see only a portion of the church was praised for walking worthy in a manner that Christians should walk. The problem at Laodicea was so severe that Jesus didn't even have one thing that was positive to say to them. It's at this point that a compliment sandwich is not fit for the occasion. No, instead, this church had to hear the, word, the hard words of Christ in his true assessment straight away. So verses 15 and 16 state that the problem is that the Laodicean church is lukewarm. Jesus wishes that they were either hot or cold, but since they are lukewarm, they're about to be spat out of his mouth. These verses bring me back to that introductory comment about the framework with which we need to use the word lukewarm. See, in the context of this letter, we should be thinking about hot or cold as a useful characteristic and lukewarm as something that is useless and disgusting. So if it helps to have like an item in mind, in the time that the whole book of Revelation was written, water was viewed in this way. Hot water was useful for bathing, for purification, and cold water is useful for drinking. But lukewarm water is useful, and it's disgusting. You don't want to use that. He wishes that the church would be either hot or cold, but instead they're neither and cannot be used. So yes, the problem with the church is that they are lukewarm. But I believe verse 17 reveals what the church was doing that caused them to be lukewarm. If I have to narrow it down to one word, I believe verse 17 is saying that this church was incredibly prideful. This church thought they were rich. They thought themselves so rich, they had prospered. And so rich, they needed nothing else. They thought they had arrived and were so invariably set for success, they didn't need anybody or anything. This prideful belief is shockingly conceited and vain. If they were rich, they should have been living like Christians who store up treasures in heaven by living generously rather than piling up the money that they claimed they had. So while on the topic of how rich Christians ought to live, since we're all living in America, we're pretty wealthy by the world's standards. And I'm slow to ask this question because I've seen you time and again use your generosity with each member. I believe the scripture calls us to ask ourselves, how are we spending our money? How are we using it to live generously? Is there anything in life that you are valuing that is causing you to be distracted from the priceless, the enduring satisfaction and living hope that we have only in Christ? Again, I only ask this question so that we do not grow materially wealthy, yet spiritually poor. Continuing on with, with verse 17, it ends with the reminder that each person is first wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked without Jesus. We need each other and weekly, this weekly gathering so that we remember our natural condition. We are the wretched men and women that Paul is talking about in Romans when he considers the enslaving power of sin and he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We need each other to remind us of how pitiful we are without the hope of Christ. Without his saving power, we are enemies with him and dead in our sin. By his grace, we are made to be friends with God. We have been bought, we've been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we're not walking in the spirit and we fall blind to the sins that crouch at the door and so easily entangle us. We need each other to help us see the sin that might be threatening us and telling us, as long as the day is called today, that we can repent and be forgiven. So as you've heard about the Laodicean church's problem of being lukewarm, you might be thinking to yourself, how do I know if I'm lukewarm? I believe that you can ask yourself, am I prideful or am I humble? So perhaps it's more helpful to think through, what's the way you view sin in your life? Do you see the weight of your sin rightly and measure the full effects of it? Even on your best of days, do you think to yourself, if it weren't for the grace of God, there would I go committing this or that sin? Or do you see yourself as too good to commit this or that sin? As we're reminded throughout Scripture, the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So do not think that you're too mature in your walk with Christ that you cannot go out and commit some terrible sin. If you ever find yourself lamenting a public Christian figure that sins in an egregious, terrible, and public manner, don't think, what's wrong with them? Instead, think, what's wrong with me? With this thought, we find ourselves far more humble and able to see what sin might be crouching at the door, trying to entangle us. So do not be like the church at Laodicea that believed they needed nothing because they built up their wealth. They thought they were the pioneers of their own destiny. They thought they were the ones that found wealth to the point of being prosperous. They thought themselves so prosperous that they needed nothing because they thought They've made everything for themselves. So do not think that you're a self-sustained person without any needs because you feel like you made yourself a fine career or you're proud of the healthy family that you've raised. Instead, see yourself as a sinner saved by grace and be like that woman in Luke's gospel that knew she'd been forgiven greatly and falls at Jesus' feet with joy and humility and showed the great love that she has for him. If we take time to remember the great work of salvation that Jesus accomplished for us, we will not fall prey to the sin of pride that works itself out in so many ways. So then, these long verses of complaint towards the Laodicean church ends with the rebuke of them being lukewarm, and the main characteristic of that condition stems from pride. So moving towards the next section, we see there's a solution offered to this church's condition. The solution for this church being lukewarm is to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 20 reveal three means by which we can commune with Jesus. Verse 18 shows to listen to his counsel. Verse 19, to be zealous when you receive his discipline. And verse 20, to eagerly await our blessed hope. So the solution to being lukewarm is to commune with Jesus. Let's look at the first method for how we are instructed to commune in this passage. In verse 18, the first method to commune with Jesus is to listen to his counsel. 
you cannot have a fellowship with someone that you do not listen to, that you ignore. Jesus tells them to buy from him the things they claimed to have, or that Jesus mentioned in his complaint, the church. First, he tells them to buy gold so that they may actually be rich. Apparently, they had built their wealth in anything beyond that which is true, everlasting wealth. They were storing their treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, while in reality, they need to have a faith that is like gold which has been refined by fire. The next time, they're, the next item they are supposed to buy is white garments so they can clothe themselves in the shame of their nakedness. This phrasing alludes to the shame and nakedness felt by Adam and Eve in the garden when you see them hiding in Genesis 3 after committing that first sin. They tried hiding themselves and their nakedness by covering themselves with fig leaves. This covering of leaves really will not do, it proves in that story. And even there in the garden, God graciously gives them better clothes made from animal skin. But today, the better garment of Christ's white robes of righteousness cover us and our shame. We need his white garments more than we need the adornment of any man-made garment. The last item this church is counseled to buy is salve or ointment to cause them to see clearly. Their spiritual blindness was a serious danger. They thought themselves rich and in need of no help whatsoever. However, they need eyes to see their true and needy condition, which Jesus points out here. So, after being told we need to buy these three items, how do we go about buying them so we might commune with Jesus? The best part about this council is that it's a, a sweet allusion to Isaiah 51, 55. So listen to verse 1. In Isaiah 55, 1, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus offers this counsel free of charge, and the items that you need are also free of charge. It doesn't take a person that, or a church that prides themselves in working hard and earning their wages to purchase these items. It's actually quite the opposite. You need to know your great need for Christ in order to accept his free gift of grace. So praise God that he sent his son to live a perfect life, die in our place once for all, and that he was raised to new life to show us the victory that he has over our enemy. Praise him for opening eyes of men and women, making them sons and daughters of the one true God. If God is opening your eyes today to see your sin and you need Jesus and your need for Jesus as your savior, I'm happy to talk with you more about that after our gathering today. But just know it looks like confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and believing in your heart that Jesus is Savior. Verse 18 then shows the first method by which we commune with our Lord. We need to listen to his counsel. The second method by which we commune with Jesus is in verse 19. And that second method is to be zealous when we receive his discipline. See, discipline is never enjoyable in the moment. I think we can all understand that reality. If you're a parent today, it's not fun to discipline your children when correction needs to happen. If you're a child in the room, I'm sure you don't enjoy the discipline you receive at first. But I also hope, children, that you feel incredibly loved by your parents because they love you enough to discipline you and not let you act any way that you think is right. They're trying to train you in the Lord's way. Perhaps you're in the marketplace 
and your supervisor gives you that critical feedback that just stings. I doubt you really love it in that moment, but I hope it's at least the case that that supervisor is really just looking out for your best interest and trying to benefit you as you progress in your career. All that said, I believe we can see the imperfect way that we all either give out and or receive discipline is only a dim reality of the way our Father's loving and tender discipline comes upon us. Hebrews 12 reminds us that our God disciplines his children that he deeply loves. So when you receive this discipline, do so with zeal. He's doing it because he loves you. So respond to his teaching and correction with humility. And know that he is sanctifying you until your final day so that you might be a part of the spotless, perfect bride, his church. So the first two methods of communing with our Lord is one, to listen to his counsel. Two, be zealous when you receive his discipline. The last method to commune with Jesus is found in verse 20. And that is to eagerly await our blessed hope. Verse 20, this, this verse is so beautiful. It shows the gentle posture of Jesus towards sinners that we can experience now and then experience perfectly later when we finally see him face to face and we get to dwell with him in everlasting life. I also find this verse to be beautiful because it shows Jesus standing and knocking at the door of someone's heart. Notice even the way it's written, it shows today he's standing, he's knocking. Today's a day for you to respond to his call. I think there are a few helpful categories to think about this call of Jesus. I think first, this letter is primarily written to Christians, and in particular, in particular, Christians who are straying away from him. So for you, straying Christian, if you have found yourself today on a snowy day, uh, getting here through the ice and the slush, Jesus has you here to remind you that he is standing and knocking and awaits your response today. So let him in and you will dine with him and he will dine with you. The second category I believe this applies to is an encouragement to believers who are not straying but are simply stable and steady in their walk. You know, oftentimes in community groups or simply over coffee or a meal, I hear about the ways that our people are encouraged by sharing their stories of how God saved them. When we share our testimonies, we are marveling at another sinner across the table from us, being saved by grace, giving God the glory, and encouraging his people to keep listening to Jesus even today. So lastly, I do believe this verse can also be a beautiful way to describe who Jesus is to an unbeliever. This verse is a reminder the gospel call is still available for all people. We get this glorious privilege to partake in this ministry of reconciliation telling the world they can be reconciled to God by the blood of his son, and they won't be left as orphans. His Holy Spirit will dwell within him all their days. So I hope this verse encourages you as an individual Christian who is straying. I hope it brings you joy to speak to your brothers and sisters as you remind them of the choice that stands before them today to keep listening to their God as he stands and knocks. And lastly, I hope it encourages you declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. As verses 18 through 20 end here, we saw three methods to commune with God in order to fight being proud and lukewarm. We're to listen to his counsel, receive his discipline with zeal, and eagerly await our blessed hope. And really, the rest of this chapter 
it points to that blessed hope even more. Verses 21 and 22 show us a similar pattern to the ending of the other letters. There's a promise for those who conquer and listen to Jesus' words. This promise is for us who listen, that we get to sit with Christ on his throne. That's the promise we get. We are united to him and conquer because he has conquered on our behalf. He rules over all things, and he has chosen us to be a royal priesthood and co-heirs over all things with him. What a glorious promise that we get to look forward to, dwelling with him in perfect union and worshiping him the rest of our days. This blessed hope, it brings us to our time of partaking in communion. Verse 20 had a mention of dining with Jesus, should we let him in as he's standing there and knocking. Today, we get to have a glimpse of what that communion with the Lord will look like one day. This invitation to dine with him shows that we are accepted by him. Here we receive the bread and the cup because we know that he really is with us just as he promised in the Great Commission. He will never leave us or forsake us. And we're meeting and worshiping together even today for the mutual encouragement that we all need and for the spiritual sustainment from our God because he knew we would need it as we follow him in this world. So let me pray for us, and then you can come and take. Uh, again, we'll begin in the first row, and you'll proceed down this aisle. We'll also allow everyone to take time and receive the elements. Let's pray. Oh, great God, thank you for choosing to adopt us as your dearly loved sons and daughters. We're grateful for your word that never fades away and for your faithful presence in our lives today. Help us to have a renewed sense of your presence today as we partake in this meal because we've been reconciled to you and now can commune with you. Holy Spirit, help us live out our days on this earth with joy and faithfulness and keep us a humble people that declares and displays your gospel until we're called home or until Christ returns and we can commune with you perfectly in our heavenly home. Amen.